0: Welcome to Wood Talk, for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who take big pieces of wood and make them smaller. Mark, Matt, and Shannon.
1: All right, it's Wood Talk number 238 for April 27th, 2015. On today's show, we're talking about curing finishes in the oven, what size miter saw, 10-inch or 12-inch, and connecting cabinets. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, which is SawStop. After more than a decade, SawStop's combination of safety and precision has made them the number one cabinet saw in North America. Use the interactive tools at SawStop.com to build and price your ideal SawStop, and then find a dealer online or near you. Protect yourself today with SawStop. That's SawStop. That's how they should say it. Frankly, so, I did. I did you a favor there, guys. You're welcome. Uh, we'd also <laughs> like to thank a few individuals who helped us out with donations and recurring donations: uh, David Walton, Gary Van Brocklin, Christopher Weaver, David Hickson, John Maddox, Eric. This is a good list this week, huh? Eric Nan. Kevin Keel and Jason Daravinsky. Thank you so much folks. We really appreciate that kind of support and if you want to help out, you can too. Go to woodtalkshow.com, look over in the right hand column and there's a few links there for those uh, one time and recurring donations. Whatever you want to do, no obligation to continue. We appreciate whatever help you can give us.
0: And, and we definitely appreciate the fact that your last names are pronounceable uh, for people who are unable to pronunciate.
1: Yeah, that makes it a whole lot easier. Just If everyone had the last name Smith... This would go much better. It could get you know, really confusing I actually though. think it adds to the entertainment value of the show. <laughs> so if your last name is easy to pronounce, make something up. Yeah, they just want to hear <laughs> you know? me stumble on it, which isn't difficult to do. Uh, you know, you can also, while you're there at woodtalkshow.com, go to the giveaway page and enter to win whatever we happen to be giving away that month. And this month, it's Matt's Tall Dresser Project Plan and a woodtalk T-shirt, which will make you look quite svelte and uh, beautiful. While wow,
0: you're looking at that amazing plan.
1: Exactly. Exactly. All right, so let's move into what's on the bench. For me, I'm at the beginning of a project. Uh, we're going into the sculpted rocker here, so today I started filming the layout process and just trying to select grain and all that good stuff, and I've got these beautiful walnut boards, and uh, I could hear Shannon over my shoulder with uh, this 12-quarter stock on. you got 12-quarter? Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's always surprised when I find thick walnut in the middle of the desert. So I basically got everything that I needed, got the 12 quarter stock. Actually, you only need 10 quarter, but all I could get was 12 quarter. And I did a little bit of the layout. And it's one of those things where, you know, Charles Brock and his video and his plans kind of recommends you go to a full two inches thick on this stuff. But the reality is most of us getting eight quarter lumber, we're not getting two inch (laughs) thick stock out of it. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see what the repercussions of that will be down, downstream from here. But I was laying out some of the parts. Everything was going great. And then I thought ahead a little bit, which is always handy to do that once in a while. And I'm looking at the, the four foot long pieces for the back legs of the rocker, right? So they go all the way from the ground to the top of the, over the, the crest rail. Nice long pieces. If that piece is anything but dead straight in terms of like flatness of the board in this state, it's going to eat up a lot of the thickness, Right, So it's got to be flat. So I'm looking at it going, well, I found the perfect grain as, as it pertains to the face grain, but what about, you know, is this thing actually a flat board? So I grabbed a four foot straight edge, laid it down on there, and I was like, you turd. It, <laughs> I, it, it was like at least an eighth of an inch out in the middle. So starting with that level of curvature on a board that's already less than two inches, you know, I'm, I'm sunk with that one. So I had to find a board that did not have the ideal grain pattern, but had the thickness that I needed. So it's just kind of an example of how, when you're starting off these projects, especially ones where grain direction not only matter, matters for visual things, but also structural integrity, um, how difficult it can be to get these laid out in a way, thinking several steps ahead to what, you know, ahead to what might actually bite you in the butt later. And it wouldn't be until I'm actually milling those pieces that I would have said, oh crap, this thing is taking a lot more passes on the joiner than I expected. <laughs> right. uh, but fortunately I was smart enough to, to to spot it now and find some other boards and, and go with plan B. So yeah, so everything's progressing really nicely. I'm uh, excited to move on with this one. This is definitely, uh, we've talked about bucket list projects in the past. This is one of them. Uh, I never expected to kind of just do it on my own with, with someone else's patterns, uh, but uh, I'll take it. This will be a fun way to do it. <laughs>
0: There you go, absolutely. Yeah. So, what you're really saying there, from what if I if I'm hearing this correctly, or maybe I'm just not paying attention because somebody painted their door red right outside my window? It's really red. <laughs> okay. Never seen something that red. Uh, <laughs> it, it, is that it? Really helps to pay attention, unlike it, me.
1: It kind of does. It helps to 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 you know try to encourage people to do this all the time. If you're making something from a plan. Read the whole article, read the entire plan, watch every video in the series before you do anything, because there's just so many places where there's those little gotchas that if you've never built it before, you don't know about. Um, So when I'm doing this myself and trying to teach other people, I tend to be focused on the moment and sometimes forget to to think about two or three steps ahead and where that might hurt me. So Mm. so I patted myself on the back a little bit today. For, for doing the right thing. Every so, now and then. Every now and then. Every now it. and then. Which means I'm bound to, like, the next thing, I'm totally going to screw it up. <laughs>
2: <Right>. Well, <laughs> with, with this particular chair, too, because there's so much sculpting that goes on later, mm-hmm. I, and, and this may just be me, but I look at it like, ah, if it's not close, I'm
1: just going to sculpt that away later, and that's <laughs> really where I think you're going to get Screwed. Yeah, know? well, that and that's the thing. Yes, there's plenty of that sculpting, but there are joints that need to go together yeah, right. before that sculpting. And it's like, well, there could be a little curve there, right? Well, well and, okay. And I'm thinking more <laughs>
2: in terms of like the grain. It's yeah, like, yeah,
1: yeah. And I've always struggled
2: with this. Like when I turn things, it's like, I don't know what it's going to look like when it's round. Right. You know, and I've never, anytime I've turned a piece for furniture where I'm trying to get kind of this cohesive look, It's such a shot in the dark. I just cannot, I can't wrap my brain around what that grain is going to look like when it's round, Yep. you know, when I've rounded everything over and, and how could you, you know, because the grain could look totally different seven, you know, a couple layers down underneath. So yeah, I've thought about that with this particular chair, the, any of these sculpted chairs kind of like, how could I possibly match that grain.
1: Yeah, and you hope that based on what you see on the face is going to sort of translate to what's below the surface and then once you add those curves in you think everything's going to line up the way you want it to but uh, I know when I've done compound curved legs with multiple curves and just, you know, we're not talking any any kind of turning, but you're cutting a curve into it. There are times where you think the grain's going to do a certain thing and you lay it out, make those two cuts and suddenly the grain just reverses on you uh, uh-huh. and you need it to follow the, the, the sort of angle you've created and the curve you've created in that leg and it just looks like crap when suddenly the grain goes in the opposite direction of the curve you cut. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So yeah, it is a little tricky to wrap your brain around it, but when it's all said and done with this chair, you know, you do the best you can. Ultimately, it's the flowing lines and the pieces where you just kind of can't tell where one ends and where the next one begins. That's what really makes this piece. So if you get all the grain to go and play along with you, all the better. But I still think even with grain that was a little mismatched and going in not the perfect direction, I think this thing's still going to look amazing. You're yes. just going to paint it anyway, right? Exactly. I've got the purple yeah. paint ready to go. <laughs> nice. You know, a nice can of latex. So I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Shannon, what about you? The only woodworking I did, even close to
2: related to woodworking, was I sharpened my lawnmower blade. Attaboy. boy, yeah, it was, um, it was, it was, it a, was uh, a hot time in the shop for me. <laughs> you know, uh, got it, I'm so close to going on like a finishing marathon. We are so close to warm enough, and actually Sunday probably could have been warm enough, but it was supposed to be cold and rainy, and mm-hmm. that kind of threw me off. But um this actually brings up a, another question cuz I've got these three commission pieces that I'm just going to finish all at once and I've really gotten to enjoy using my Erlex lately mm-hmm. kind of gotten over the whole spraying is difficult and now it's like spraying is the lazy way to finish. I guess well, 2 thirds is... of
0: the wood talk crew feel that way.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like wood turning. Once you start it, you kind of get a little addicted to it and you go down a rabbit hole. Spraying is like, man, where have you been all my life? But um, and, and I guess this would be a question from Mark, because obviously, Mark, you're a much more experienced sprayer than than I am. At what point do you say, no, I shouldn't spray that? Is there a point?
1: Um, honestly, most of the time the reason I don't spray is because I Don't want to edge out people who don't have HVLP systems. That's what I was wondering if you were going to say. Yeah, and and there (laughs) there are occasions. There's certain projects. For instance, the 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 rocker, right? That's a project that I really feel like deserves the TLC of a hand applied, hand rubbed finish. I don't I don't feel right about doing a sprayed finish on that one. Um, But there are very few projects that you know, just in general, would not benefit from the use of an uh, HVLP system. Cause I was looking at,
2: and th- I put the second video of this build buildup um, last week, this, just this little display shelf thing. And I started thinking about it, you know, I, I could just go ahead and spray this because I haven't shown any spraying on my, um, any of my videos up until this point, frankly, cause I've been scared to, yeah. uh, I just, I needed to, to wrap my head around this and use it a lot and try a couple of different finishes. I still haven't sprayed anything oil. Uh, and it, I've just sprayed shellac and water I don't, uh, water by the way. Stuff. I mean, it
1: might be personal preference, but I stay away from anything oil-based when I do HVLP. For me, I just don't want to have to deal with the cleanup. <laughs> yeah. So
2: even though I know that I could just p- run the solvent in there and then blow it through, I just I haven't felt like dealing with it. Sure. That and I've gotten to be really partial to um, Endurovar, uh, General Finishes Endurovar. I really oh, yeah. like it's that good stuff. stuff. Um, but, uh, I'm looking at the shelf and I'm thinking, well, you know, it's, it's relatively small. I could spray it in like 30 seconds flat, but the shelves are kind of close together and I'm starting to wonder, and it may just be my skill level with a spray gun. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm worried about, you know, I, how do I get in there? How do I not, um, screw it up? Because you can't, they're, they're, they're only like what, nine inches apart. So getting in there, especially the shelves in the middle and getting even coverage is something that makes me wonder, and it takes me back to whether it was two episodes ago or whatever when somebody asked about painting like little cubbies that right. only, like yeah. six, six inches high. Mm-hmm. This is an open display shelf. so there is no back, there's no sides, you know it's just post and and everything like that. I just started wondering, is this one of those times when I should put the spray gun down and just wipe it on and be done with it,
1: yeah. It could very well be, and I think that's the thing if the overspray becomes a major issue and you're going to find yourself sanding uh, you know aggressively because you have so much orange peel and overspray everywhere um, that's a, a time where you might step back and say, "Yeah, maybe we won 't do the spray this time. <laughs> the other part of me is thinking though it might be a fun thing to like you know
2: tighten up the spray pattern and because i'm told i've never done this, but I'm told if you really tighten it down, you can like paint like a quarter inch line um with one of these spray guns and i'm like that might be kind of fun but then it's like eh, yeah but then i just need to get it done
1: i'm just <laughs> gonna buy i'm just gonna buy a little airbrush gun so you can go out there, there and paint go. like a wizard on the side <laughs> or something like
0: that <laughs> and if you get really bored you can also maybe do some t-shirts with it too yeah, there
2: you go nice. <laughs> right on. yeah so yeah it was it was a lot of uh doing yard work and thinking about the woodworking that i wanted to do but yeah it's it's
1: it's been a long winter around here and the backyard was in really bad shape. As yeah. was a lawnmower. Hey, speaking so. of lawnmower blades, you ever see that uh Roy Underhill episode where he took a lawnmower blade and made um oh what the heck was it? One of those dealy whackers that makes round tenons on the ends of a, a board, on the end like a thin board. Oh, almost like a like a chair. Um, it sounds slide. familiar. I've seen so many Woodwright shops since they started releasing the old ones. I don't.
2: Yeah, remember. it's one that was
1: just really memorable. He just took an old lawnmower blade and cut a little piece off, and you know, he worked on it a little bit to to make it appropriate for for woodworking but I'm looking at it going like here's a whole mess of crap I'm never going to do <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like, it's so fun yeah. to
2: watch but I know he took a leaf spring and made a fro out of it once so right. hey why not it's so cool to
1: watch
0: anyway yeah, I remember he used a, uh, an old file for something once and I can't remember what it was now but he even, he even like took some bricks and made his own little kiln and, yeah, yeah. and his own little furnace and did and I kept thinking yep there goes the house <laughs> <laughs> exactly can I do that in the basement
1: hmm, right. <laughs> maybe not a good idea alright Matt speaking of the basement what about you
0: well, for me, uh, as usual, it's uh, I'm wrapping up all those fine little details that just I keep putting off and putting off and putting off. And in this situation, I, I blogged about it earlier today uh, as we're recording this. Uh, I was going into the reveals around the drawer openings for the uh, eight drawers that I'm building for this tall dresser. The main thing that I am most concerned about right now is because of the fact that I am very, very conscious that, as Shannon mentioned, you know it's been a long winter. We're now heading into we're we're supposed to be in spring. I keep hearing it's spring, <laughs> uh, but we're going to be heading into the the warm, humid months, uh, just a little ro- little ways down the road. And so I keep looking at my reveals and thinking, I, I think I need to tweak it one more time. <laughs> Because that thing, as soon as I – and I'm planning on painting the tall dresser. uh, In fact, I I think we just finally worked out the color. So I've got to make sure we got the right one down before she changes her mind again. And so – but I keep thinking even if I put just a – Thin layer of paint on there enough to make sure that it's on so that even if there is happens to be a little rub or something, it's not going to come off. I'm just again worried that when those warm, humid months are going to kick in, that it's going to expand just a little bit more. I think I finally got it to the point now where I'm comfortable with it. It looks a little gappy, but in my mind, it's like one of those that's it, that's perfect, that's right where it is. You know, I in fact, one thing I mentioned in the blog post is that one thing I love about inset drawers and doors is I just love that reveal line all the way around when you nail it the right way and it gives the door or the drawer front that appearance like somehow it's like floating in space. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that look. So that was pretty much the majority of what I was doing. One of the other final things to wrap up the uh, the build was to I needed to kind of get the surface all prepped and take care of some last minute planing and card scraping and now I'm getting ready to head into the sanding portion to kind of blend everything together. And I was having a little trouble with my my low angle smoother, and I kept thinking, well, I can't remember exactly if I sharpened this just recently. So I probably should take it over and re-hone the blade a little bit, just touch it up a little, because it is just giving me some really weird shavings. I don't know what's going on here. It's really resistant. And then that's when I noticed that – or actually, I should say I remembered I have – three different blades for my low angle plane i went ahead and, and and purchased all the ones that were available and it suddenly dawned on me because i wrote a little note for myself with permanent marker on the blade that rather than using the standard like 38 degree angle blade i was using the 50 right. and uh nice. that <laughs> well, explains why it felt like push. i needed to hitch up some mules to pull the plane down the length and it wasn't giving me That uh, shavings that I was thinking it would. (laughs) So the good news is, mentally, I feel a lot better about myself because I was really starting to doubt my abilities. And and did you Uh, learn that now? I'm just starting to doubt my reading ability.
1: (laughs) I'm just going to say, did you learn that you can now, with a big black sharpie, write? the number 50 on that one
0: <laughs> you know what the funny thing is uh so a while ago i got new glasses and they happen to be bifocals it's been about six months now i think and so i just kind of assumed that uh that's the issue because i wrote it really really small and i'm like first of all i don't know how i wrote it that small because i haven't been able to see that small in a long time right. so yeah i think i'm gonna go through and remark all of the blades now <laughs> with yeah. their, their their bevels on it that's in a, a much larger font there you go
1: nice <laughs> All right, well, let's jump into what's new. This is where you send us some uh, cool links, articles, blog posts, videos, things you found around the web, and we tell everybody about them. And Steve wrote in, and he says, I came across this article, My Wife Quilts, and I thought you could replace the word quilt with furniture, and the rest of the article would hold up just fine. And this is at moreapproved.com, and it's about the uh, real cost of quilts. And I think the, the gist of it here is trying to explain to people why a piece of custom furniture does not cost less than what you could buy a piece of furniture at Walmart for. Uh, Things are always more expensive and a lot of uh, average folks don't necessarily understand why. And this is a good thing. Just in the world of quilts, talking about the the, the man hours that are put into these things and the materials and the care when this is done by hand, why it costs so much. So it's a fairly lengthy post, uh, but I think it's a pretty interesting read and, and definitely can apply to furniture making.
0: Very Sweet. Cool. Yeah. All right. We have this next one that came in from David. And David says, you know, Mark Supic see, so much for the easy pronunciation of those last names. <laughs> Mark Supic runs a professional architectural turning shop in Baltimore, and he turns a lot of beer taps for many microbreweries. The cool thing is that he also teaches wood turning classes on the weekend in his commercial shop, and he's a great guy. Oh, well, cool. i will have to meet Mark sometime. Anyways, we have a, a link to a YouTube video, and the video is uh, titled Half Sphere Table – on a faceplate lathe. Now, if this is half a sphere when you look at it. This thing is monstrous. It's it pretty is big. absolutely gigantic. And the funny thing is when I first looked at it, I could see like uh, um, it looks like uh, w- one part of the lathe looks like it's this tiny little bit like somehow it's supposed to be holding this bowl that are well they're saying a half sphere table it looks like a giant bowl to me uh i I think that bowl is probably about the size of my upper torso (laughs) (laughs) and so seeing that little that that little you know uh live end there, trying to hold that in place or what looks like it is kind of freaked me out for a second but as you go through the video you can see that looks like it has some support on the interior there to help hold it in place but this is gigantic, and it goes on to say that the wood is reclaimed Douglas fir from some of Baltimore's dismantled vinegar tanks. Wow. So I'm really wondering what a shop smells like with that. Oh,
1: it's got to smell good. I love vinegar. A oh, little yeah. oil in there, I could, and you're like, all like, let's I could, have a salad. I could drink it. It's, it's delicious. Like when I get you know, uh, <laughs> a sandwich with vinegar, I'm like extra. Have you
0: ever had sipping vinegar? No. Well, I, I made
1: regular vinegar into sipping vinegar,
0: <laughs> like a good balsamic. <laughs> uh, our friends who apparently really, really like to drink have been like yeah, – that's a, that's a huge thing amongst our friends now. They get these, uh, these sipping vinegars, and it's very much something that you have along with your cocktails. And I hear it tastes really good. I just can't get past the fact that it's vinegar.
1: Yeah. No, I love vinegar. Uh, what, like when it makes your eyes sweat, like just under your eyes, you know you had just <laughs> the right amount. Oh,
0: okay. it's so good. Well, I'll remember that.
2: <laughs> wow, I knew a lot of people like you in New Jersey. Oh, really? A lot of people <laughs> who worked behind sandwich counters. Yeah, you order the sandwich. They're like, whoa, 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 easy on the vinegar, there, buddy. They're like, what are you talking
1: about? <laughs> yeah, there's a Jersey uh, Mike's sub shop here and that originated in Jersey and as they're doing it they just like the oil and vinegar on there is perfect they just keep going for like 30 seconds and I'm like ah you guys got it thank
0: you but I do that sounds like how Samantha likes her mayo yeah
1: and I'm thinking you know how do other people what do other people think about this is that like it's just right for me but geez I know I'm excessive with this
0: stuff usually I'm like uh, I would like the not spagnolo version
1: non spag
2: version please you need to get some of that um, some of the new stabilized wood like um, the brand name that comes to mind is a it's um treated but it's like vinegar impregnated oh really so that it, it's a really really stable uh it's like almost no movement whatsoever wow um I think they use um like radiata pine from New Zealand mm-hmm. and then they they do this treatment to it and um <laughs> when you cut it sure enough it smells like a sub shop sweet uh, so there you go Give me some cold cold cuts. Let's have
1: a party. (laughs) Nice. All right, Shannon, you got the next one. All right. This comes to us from Kay.
2: She says, this is an interesting mix of technology and a beautiful chair. It's an Instructables article and it's called the Divisadero chair. It's a beautiful chair made with live edge stock and the latest technology. Is this where fine woodworking will be going in the years to come? So I remember when this came in and I clicked on this and I gotta admit, I don't like this chair. <laughs> to me, it's ugly. But it's—I um, don't know. There's too much contrast. There, there seems to be like when you see walnut and maple together, that it, there's too stark a difference between the two woods to me, and it just seems like I don't know. Uh, don't like it. But anyway, <laughs> the process in which it's made is imagine like in Tarja. Where the whole chair is made out of intarsied panels,
1: yeah. um,
2: but it's done using 3D modeling software and uh, a five-axis CNC machine, and um, essentially you you plan the whole thing out on the model, and the CNC comes in and it makes all the the curvy cuts that join everything together. And um, what's cool about this article is there's also reference to the Bole Wood Floor Company. Yeah. Which, if, you, if you're not familiar with these guys, actually, one of you guys, didn't you post something on the Wood Talk Facebook page just yep. yesterday about these guys? Yep, Yeah, we, We've we've had some dealings with them at the lumber yard. They are, Uh-oh. Uh, just look at it. You can imagine, they're incredibly expensive floors. Imagine taking through and through sawn slabs and kind of embracing the live edge look of that slab and integrating it into a tongue and groove floor. Um, that's exactly what they do. So they're... Quite expensive, um,
1: even with the technology that is just seems labor intensive. Well, mean, the big
2: thing is is matching the floor.
1: Yeah, um, each the- piece needs to be kind of like okay, this one's close enough, and then let's approximate <laughs> let's approximate the curve so that each one of them takes on that same exact curve.
0: Right. See, if that was in the Vanderlust household and I was somehow left to do this on my own, not purchasing this, like just somebody, Samantha showed up with a giant pile of live edges and said, Go ahead and make a floor out of this. There would be valleys everywhere between those. I'd be like, Don't walk on this floor in the middle of the night. Isn't or that what? If, oh, you're blindfolded. That's
1: what epoxy is for. You just kind of fill the right. gap between, right?
0: Especially that glow in the dark <laughs> one. Oh my gosh, the glow in the dark one. That would be perfect. It'd exactly. be like, You don't even need to turn the lights on. We'll just use this all night long. Totally intentional. Well, the cool thing about
2: it, I don't know if it's for their entire line, but I think most of the stuff the bullet people do is, um, it's a laminate, not laminate as in plastic, but it's, it's laminated onto a substrate. Yeah. Right. So they can get like a really cool flitch match, but it's still like, I want to say an eighth to a quarter of an inch thick. Maybe it's probably more like a quarter of an inch um, that they laminate on top of some sort of probably ply-ish uh, substrate. But what um, what we've started to see is customers that want that cool live edge looking floor, but they want it like sequence matched. So the whole floor looks like an entire tree. And um, <clears throat> that's when things get real expensive. And it's the technology that allows you to actually lay that out. You can inventory and like um, take an image of each layer of the flitch and assemble it into a floor, whatever square footage. Now imagine... You know, not every room is a perfect square or perfect rectangle with right, you know, right angles in each corner.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Throw in kitchen islands and, you know, cupolas and things like that. And it gets really complex really quickly. And uh, it's pretty cool stuff, but <laughs> it's a bit out of my price range. Just put it this way. Um, most of the ones we sell, they go to the Hamptons.
1: Uh-huh. Well, we don't
2: sell them. We the, we sell other lumber, and they're putting in this floor at the same time. They go to the Hamptons, and they're usually names that you would know, household right. names type people that have these floors in their like in their Vanderlist. Homes. Yeah, like vandalist. Yeah, right. definitely
0: Vanda van somethings. The ha- the Hampton vandalists. Yes. Right. Yeah, who who totally a- won't even acknowledge my existence. So, <laughs> hey, do you think
1: the you know, the question raised with the original uh, post here is do you think this is where fine woodworking is going? Um I think it's interesting that technology is you know, the processes and the machines are getting good enough that they can do something that starts to go into the realm of what used to only be able to be done by hand. You know, like at what point is what will you be able to poop out a Maloof rocker from one of these things? You know, it's usually where their weakness is—is is you can right. only go so far with the, with the curvature and the sculpting of pieces that need to be joined together. Um, but right. I'm very interested to see technologically how far this can go. I, I, I think, think there's, there's going to be a lot of. Oh, turn
0: ahead. Ahead. No, you go ahead. You're.
2: Uh, I think Mark, you hit it on the at the outset of this. Is. Um, uh, Sorry, my wife is talking to me at the same time. I just lost my train of thought. Okay, <laughs> the um, uh, you said it at the outset that it's not exactly cheaper. You know, you would think, oh, these are floors that are you know perfectly everything's modeled on a computer, everything's laid out on a CNC. The actual labor, like man hour labor, is very low. Well, that's not actually the case. No. Um, there is a lot of stuff that goes on, and yes, it's a computer and a CNC that's doing it. But it's still taking a long time yeah. and and the prep work that goes into all this stuff and laying out of the tongue and groove on all those weird corners and things like that. So, yeah, I could see this is where it's going, but I don't think it's going to be
1: that It's not going to replace widespread, what we
2: do. You know, because it's still you, – you've got this – you've got the mass-produced furniture that is – Mass-produced in great numbers, and then you've got kind of the boutique type stuff that's made in smaller numbers because there's a smaller market for the people that can afford this. So it may be built on a CNC, but if the price point is still really, really high, you know, is that really, you know, going to to set the market
1: on fire? I don't sure, know. Sure. What were you going to say, Matt?
0: Mm. Uh, no, actually, some, I was just thinking. Uh, never mind. My wife came in and irritated, uh, bothered me <laughs> Hold too. on. My wife's due to come in here any minute now. <laughs> I think they all sync together on that <laughs> That's one. That's what it is. <laughs> I did, if anything, I did, it's kind of like along along the lines of what Shannon was saying. So, yeah.
1: Okay. Cool. All right. Let's move into our poll of the week from our good buddy, Tom Iovino at tomsworkbench.com. We don't have a new poll this week, but we do have last week's results. And the question was, how do you store your tools? Just kind of uh, in the open, on shelves, or covered? And 60% said a little bit of both in their shops. 27% said closed in and protected and 10% said in the open and accessible. Uh, There's a couple other answers there too but you can go to the website and check out the rest of the results and we'll have another poll up there pretty soon just not in time for the recording of this show. All right, let's move into our kickback. And uh, first one here is from Dave. He says, I purchased wood from Craigslist once and it was a mixed bag. First, the good. I picked up a generous 200 board feet of four quarter hickory for $200 from a local cabinet maker. The tree came from one of his client's yards and he cut it up with his own portable sawmill and dried the boards in his own kiln. I used the hickory to build a split top Rubo. Had it not been for Craigslist, I would not have been able to afford to build the Rubo, at least not with benchcrafted, benchcrafted vices now the bed, while the hickory was dry and bug-free, it was, to put it charitably, rustic. Even though there was easily 200 board feet, by the time I navigated the various checks, splits, knots, I barely had enough for the rubo's top. I ended up buying maple for the base because there wasn't enough hickory left. This actually turned out to be a blessing, however, as it turns out that working with hickory is about as fun as a colonoscopy, except with- uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Always a good time.
1: Yes, except with way more splinters- Ouch. Uh, if I had to do it over again, I would just buy S4S 8 quarter maple and save myself about six months worth of work and several sets of planar blades. That said, I now have a, a Rubo for a fraction of the price it would have otherwise cost. So a little bit of feedback
0: there on uh, experience with Craigslist wood. Hmm, Craigslist wood. That sounds like a fun show. (laughs) All right, well, hey, this next kickback came in from Zach, and Zach says, everyone always has great things to say about SawStop, and I do too, with one exception. Since I own the 1.75 horsepower model, I, like many woodworkers, use a thin-curve blade, a Forrest Woodworker II, the thin-curve version. My problem comes when I'm ripping boards. The riving knife pushes the board into the fence, causing a large amount of extra resistance, which I feel is unsafe and very annoying. After doing some looking around on the internet, I read somewhere that SawStop doesn't offer a riving knife for the thin kerf blades. Now, I did some checking on my saw and both the blade and the knife are a bit over nine hundred thousandths, nine thousandths. 0.090 0.090 thousands. A little <laughs> bit. <laughs> Very good, Matt. You're, so you're, you're from the uh, science background, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Well, I only do just things in it. metrics. So.
2: <laughs> that will be uh, 9 uh, times 10 to the negative second.
0: There you go. Just
2: put <laughs> it there. <in, laughs> is that a nano thousands?
0: <laughs> Also, the knife seems to be offset towards the fence just a bit further than the blade. I would love to hear how other people deal with using thin curve blades when the stock driving knife is only designed For a full curve blade. So I I just wanted to double check on this one because I also happen to have the 1.75 horsepower model. Um and for sure, yeah, it's it's a full thickness blade thickness for the the, the riving knife as as Zach was describing. One thing SawStop does say in their literature is that they um, suggest rather strongly that that users don't use a thin kerf blade simply because of a concern that they mentioned somewhere in there. It was along the lines of that if that breaking mechanism is to, uh, to to fire off, there's a chance that it's going to do some real severe damage to the blade. Uh, and, and everything from there. So that's one of the reasons why they, they don't suggest doing it. Now, one thing that I, I read in here is that Zach was saying how, you know, the, the big thing is the fact that the, the riving knife is pushing tight against the fence when the the wood obviously moves past the blade. Uh, I was trying to think, why would that be? And, of course, it's that you're going to be uh, zeroing the fence off of the blade itself. You're not zeroing it off of the riving knife. So if your blade is just a pinch thinner than the riving knife. That explains now why it's going to be tight between the riving knife and the fence. So one of my suggestions to Zach, uh, other than maybe consider getting a full thickness blade, because I use a full thickness blade. In fact, I use a Woodworker uh, two also from Forest, and um, I really don't have any issues even when I'm cutting much thicker stock, including like uh, eight-quarter maple. Um, But anyways, one thing I was thinking is, and I know I've seen other people suggest this too, not just for a saw stop, but other saws, is just slightly offsetting the fence so that it's just Slightly on an angle there, because really, as long as the cut itself, where, right where the blade first meets the wood, as long as that is, you know, making cutting at the the, the width that you're desiring there for your cut, um, if it's def- if the fence is deflecting off a little bit to the side, it's not really all that bad. And you know, the main thing there is just to make sure that you you're pushing up against the fence, of course, for safety reasons. Uh, but that seems to be a possibility here. I mean, you're only moving. What I think the riving knife is, what do you say, it was 0.092, and his blade is 0.090. So that fraction that you would have to offset the fence a little is pretty tiny as far as I'm concerned. But um, it's, it's one of those things uh, in there, like I said, SawStop recommends not using a thin kerf blade. And I, I'm just, you know, I... I'm going to go off on a tangent here a little bit. I constantly hear people talk about the reason why they need these super large powerful motors is because they keep bogging down while they're making cuts in really thick stock. Number 1, when when I'm using really thick stock, I guess I, I don't I either I don't use it enough or I just slow down my f- cut rate to a speed that the blade can handle is everybody in that much of a hurry that they have just got to shove these things through at like 60 miles an hour i know i am you are well i figured you would because you got to get down to the sub shop to make sure you get your vinegar sandwich there. yeah i got things uh, to do
2: you should have plenty of time though while they're putting the vinegar on your sub <laughs> that's right you just you, slow down i could build a whole project in that time you know, well, I Matt, that- I'm so glad to hear you say this, though, because it's exactly what I was thinking. I remember buying a thin kerf blade because somebody told me, oh, you only have a contractor saw. You can't run a full kerf blade on that. Right. And then I, I finally bought a real blade um, instead of a cheapo one. And it was a full kerf woodworker two blade. And it was in, what was my contractor saw? A one and a quarter horse, I think. Never had the thing bogged. I shouldn't say I never had it bogged down. I just slowed down. Right. Um, And I was cutting eight quarter. I remember cutting eight quarter hard maple, white oak. Um, Never really had problems. It just went slower. And you're right. You hear this all the time. And I just, I wonder how often do I, what I I never use the thin curved blade anymore. I didn't save that much material um, by cutting it off. I don't think it was about the kerf width. It was about being able to, you know, a, a lower, lesser powered motor being able to do it. I just never, never had that problem.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, th- depending th- on the species you're using, um, that could really affect it a lot. Because That's if you go,
2: true. you're Mr. Purple Heart. Yeah, I mean, you brain.
1: you can <laughs> yeah, go can as slow exactly. as you want, you know. But the problem is, if you're going slow, the teeth are running through the same part of the board that many more times a second and you wind up with a lot of burning, extra friction and essentially shortening the life of the blade. So I think the real key is, you know, even more so than thin thin kerf versus thick kerf is using the right blade for the job. So you you may not be able to get away with going with a 40 tooth and calling it done. You may have to get a ripping blade for your rips and a crosscut blade for your crosscuts. And that will make a huge difference in your ability to, you know, put this thing through at a reasonable pace and not have a burning uh, blade situation.
0: Yeah. You know, that is, you're right. There is something to be said about using the the right blade. And I know a lot of people, again, for economic reasons, I know in my own situation, believe it or not, I do kind of look at these things once in a while going, "Eh, I can't really afford that blade, but I can probably use this one pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um, I I know a lot of people like to have just one, maybe two blades Mm -hmm. at the most to to go off of. But um, yeah, I just, even I, I was in a similar situation as you, Shannon, with it with a contractor saw and I ended up I, I probably read the same article or read the same forum post where it's like you have to have a thin curve, if you can't do it without it. Right. And uh, I kind of did the, the, the same thing, but yeah. <laughs> so so what I'm really hearing is if you're using specific exotics, then consider maybe going with a, a specialized blade or a different blade. But otherwise I'm still gonna stick to my guns of slow it down, mister. What's the hurry? <laughs>
2: So in other words, not only do you have to spend more to buy the exotics, now you gotta spend more to buy a special blade for them.
0: Yeah. You know what? I think the industry is actually trying to uh they're they're in cahoots. <laughs> yeah, well, and I then just you think gotta you gotta sharpen how... your
1: blades too more often. <clears throat> uh,
0: I, I was I was apparently maybe it was just my my stage of
2: life, my that, that woodworking stage I went through when I was doing power tool work. I was apparently not a good power tool woodworker because I I didn't buy any of this stuff. <laughs> I would, And now that I'm into hand tools, I have all the little, I've got a specialty plane for this and a specialty saw for that. I just, I didn't do that with power tool. I guess I just, I was a fish out of water. Hmm. You're where you needed to be, Shannon. Yeah, I'm go. where I needed to be in order to spend the most money. <laughs> That's right.
0: Well, you, and now you, you need to be onto the next kickback. All right. So this is from Ira.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ira is a relatively new woodworker in the fine furniture making sense. He puts that in quotes. I don't know if he's. Joking there or not. So there's a whole whole lot of techniques I'm still learning and trying out. I just recently watched Matt's glue up of his daughter's dresser, and I thought it was one of the most fascinating and educational videos I've seen recently. Yay. Good job, Matt. Way to go. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've never glued up a substantial furniture piece before, so watching Matt scramble around, get out of breath, and have almost a minor freakout was a great insight into what I can expect. I feel like I'd be much more comfortable now attempting that myself after watching the process in real time than if he had said, I need to look professional and just showed a highly edited montage or cut to the final piece. This topic reminded me of the recent discussion about short versus long-term videos. Just, uh, just, just as you all thought that longer videos allow you to teach more, I think you overvalue the idea of knowing what you're talking about as a teaching tool. Since I'm new to many tools and techniques, watching someone else be new at something makes that thing less scary and intimidating. Watching a master execute something perfectly simply doesn't increase my own personal comfort factor or self-esteem when trying something new. So there you go. You heard it from Ira.
1: Very nice. You know, little does Ira know that when Matt makes a bologna sandwich in the kitchen, he does the same thing. He sweats. (laughs) He freaks out. It's it's a whole thing.
0: It's, it, it's very, very – I had the same thing when I'm trying to get a glass of water and I want to make sure just the right amount of ice is in there. It's just, it's just the way Matt does things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everything's done that way. All right. Uh, next one here is from John from North Wales. Just some kickback regarding the listener question about finishing blotchy woods. My first major project was a toy chest I built for my son out of solid poplar. After hearing that poplar could sometimes blotch – uh, from the aforementioned video by Mark, I looked into various methods of dealing with this issue, settled on a glue size mixture. I found a helpful recipe on Lee Valley's website, we'll put the link there for you, and used Bond's hide glue instead of the fish glue that they list due to local availability. For the finish, I went with Mark's wiping varnish and was very satisfied with the combined results. I mentioned this in the event that it might be more useful method for a hobbyist like myself who regularly uses hide glue and might only need a project size amount at any given time. Thanks for putting out a great show every week, week in week out. He says, actually. Uh, oh, well, you're welcome. Yeah, great. So glue size, and you know, interestingly enough, if you look into the formula, you know, I, I sang the praises of um, uh, Charles Neal's stuff and the ingredients are Actually, sort of close to a classic glue size mixture, water. <laughs> you know, that involves a PVA glue and even a little bit of water based finish. So, I'm sure he's got this, you know, wonderful, worked out proprietary blend that makes it work as well as it does. But its roots are in that sort of glue size mixture, but water based glue, not hide glue. It's just got a pinch of fairy dust, just a little bit, uh, right?
0: right a lot of vinegar.
1: It does, <laughs> yes. You think, uh, Charles Neal likes vinegar? It's from Um, the south. South, People in the south like vinegar, probably, huh? Like Carolina barbecue is vinegar based. There you go. For
0: some reason, I I want to keep saying like a vinegar pie, but I I can't remember where I I I would eat that.
1: (laughs) You just just got Mark very excited. I got I got a hear like an audible gasp. Like vinegar pie (laughs) sounds good. I know what I'm having for dinner. All right, let's get into our email. First one here is from Scott. He said, "'So I made a piece of peel from Ash and Walnut, a la Mark's uh, video for the most part. I decided on trying tried and true Danish oil for the finish. So I have everything done and I'm waiting for the oil to cure and was wondering what you think of this idea to speed up the process.'" When we proof bread, we often turn on the oven light and the temperature reaches about 80 degrees. Excuse me, would putting the pizza peel in there overnight be a good idea or would I risk some adverse effects? I could see doing this as a standard practice with smaller items with this type of finish. Well, that's interesting. You know, the first time I read this, I actually thought he was saying he was going to turn the oven on to the proof setting, which is usually higher than 80 degrees. So there's, of course, risks that you think about in terms of, um, you know, just safety and the heat going higher than 80 degrees. But he's saying just the oven light, which is kind of interesting. So, you know, here's the thing. 80 degrees is a great temperature to cure things. The only concern I have with the oven is the oven tends to be very dry. Now, the mm-hmm. the, the thing, though, is this isn't the oven uh, normal heat element that's producing this heat. It's a light bulb, you know? So the only major drawback, and anyone, feel free to, Disagree or correct me if I'm wrong here. Since it's just a light bulb in a self-contained environment, it's really no different than putting a light bulb into like a cooler, which we found out several episodes ago <laughs> isn't the greatest. It depends thing on to what do. size uh, light that is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this is an oven and not a plastic cooler. Uh, it doesn't sound like that bad of an idea. But my only concern is you're now putting this oil, which does have a fragrance. It has a very obvious smell. You're putting that in your oven. Which can then affect things that are cooked in that afterwards. So, that could be, you know, for domestic reasons, problematic for you. But, (laughs) you know, but honestly, I don't really think there's going to be much of a problem with loss of moisture because it's in a closed environment and you're not actively heating it with a a hardcore sort of heating element. It's just the heat from the light bulb. So, initially, I was going to say this is a terrible idea. But then when I found out he's talking about the light bulb, I think for smaller projects, this may not be. A, a bad way to go if you can't get the temperature up in your shop.
0: Well, I mean, it worked for the Easy Bake Oven all those years ago. <laughs> That's why it wouldn't work for this. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah I'm going to give a thumbs up something, for
2: this. I've never put in the oven, but I've, like, cranked the heater, the space heater in my shop, mm-hmm. to, and it, I mean, yeah, it really speeds up the finished drying time, like cuts it in half. Which well, is why I am a little, little,
0: like, a tent around the heater and that. I mean, obviously in a safe to safe distance from the heater. i was to think f- of a
1: way in which putting a heater in a tent would ever be safe, but
0: okay. <laughs> a plastic
1: tent <laughs> surrounded, held down by cans of gasoline. I mean, I'm just talking about like
2: <laughs> turning up the heater in the shop because I was worried it was going to get cold and – my shop is one of those things where it reaches a certain point and like the heater is winning big time. Yeah. So it's like it's just barely keeping it warm and then suddenly it tips over to 70 degrees and now it's 89, you know, seconds later. And that's what happened one time. I I cranked the heater up to make sure that it stayed warm enough. And when I went back in like an hour later, it was almost 85 degrees in the shop <laughs> and the finish was, was done. It was like ready to be recoated and it was an oil finish. Yeah, I can so, tell
1: you as someone whose shop generally lives at about 80 degrees all year <laughs> right. long that it's an ideal finishing temperature. I mean, I could apply multiple coats of something like Armor Seal or Wipe-on-Poly from Minwax, uh, multiple coats in a day easily. So oil-based finishes will certainly cure better and faster at that temperature. So I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I'd be curious if anyone, other than that smell being an issue, I'd be very curious if anyone has any reason why they think this is a bad idea. And basically, well, we just it? call it the Phoenix effect. There you Put go. it in the oven, crank it up to
2: 120 degrees. Yeah, see, that's,
1: that's where I get concerned. If you start actually using the active heat element, I feel like it's going to drive moisture out of the project, and that's where things will be problematic.
0: I keep picturing this pizza peel being too large to fit in the oven. How big is this oven?
1: I know my pizza peel would not fit in my oven. Yeah. I mean, well, you know what? Maybe if I angled it, and put it up on edge, it might, but maybe flat, no dice. It's it's a dieter's pizza peel. Oh, in that case, it's a personal pizza peel. <laughs> personal, yeah. personal. I pan call it pizza it those
0: peel. spatulas. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Cool. All right, Matt. All right. Well, let's move on to this next question. This question came in from Jeff, and he says, "I had to replace my old miter saw, so I bought a Dewalt 12-inch sliding compound dual bevel saw that came with a free stand. Uh, braggart." Uh, This sucker is huge, a lot deeper than my old DeWalt 12-inch non-sliding miter saw. So my question would see a problem with a small shop, but my shop's 15 feet by 30 feet, Having such a large saw when I would only need the extra capacity rarely, or should I return for a non, or should I return it for a non-sliding ten-inch or twelve-inch? The depth of the slide, the knob out front, the swing and dust hose back brings this way out into the room, and I know it depends on what I'm building. My dilemma is that I know I'll use that tool for home remodeling some, and also woodworking, and maybe more woodworking in the future. I just know what I'm gonna build because I'm I'm new. I I just know what I'm going to build because I'm new to it. I I know know. I'm going to try all kinds of things. Boiled down, what are your general thoughts on miter saw size for most woodworking shops? that might also use it for some remodeling projects. I should have just read that last line. (laughs) (laughs) That was the question, wasn't it? That was the question. General thoughts on (laughs) miter saw size for most woodworking shops that might also use it for some remodeling projects. So 10-inch, 12-inch miter saw. This to me reminds me of the same discussion of 6-inch versus 8-inch joiner. It's all about the capacity in there. And I have had... I've actually had an 8-inch miter saw, which I have to tell you was really great for uh, just really uh, narrow uh, molding around like windows and stuff like that, but not very useful for much else. Um, when it comes down to it, I, I currently have a 12-inch miter saw, and while it is really great to have, I don't really use all that much capacity. And to be honest, I barely ever use my miter saw. I usually use my table saw for almost all of my cross-cutting action that I need, even some uh, miters and stuff. I just I, I feel like it, it works really great. I can dial it in perfect, does uh, exactly what I want with it. I think the issue here is because – Jeff you you're saying you're not sure you know you're thinking you're anticipating that you're maybe going to use it uh for some other work somewhere down the line but right now just it simply being in the shop with all that sticking out and everything else it, in my mind I know for my own shop even if I were to use my miter saw an awful lot that would be such an issue for me because it would constantly be in the way or I would have to move it in a position to get it out of the way um I probably would want to go with something else. Uh, but really, I guess in general, 10 inch versus 12 inch, there is nothing wrong with a, a 10 inch miter. So I think that will handle, at least in my own shop and my own experience, easily 99% of the work that I would ask it to do. Do you think foregoing the sliding mechanism is a good idea? I, I do in the, from what he's describing. And yeah. for myself, um, I mean, i i I while I have had moments where I wish I had the sliding capacity again, probably ninety five to ninety nine percent of the time i I haven't needed anything like that, and if I did, I just took it over to the table saw and said, Here we go.'
1: I think it's a matter of workflow, right? Because I use the the miter saw for cross-cutting anything that's, I don't know, whatever can fit within the capacity of that saw. Uh, I typically use that to cross-cut my boards. I just find it so much faster than pulling up the sled or using the miter gauge at the table saw. Um, So for me, I want as much capacity as I can get. So I would say if if he's going to try to do that and do a lot of cross-cutting, then, yeah, at least get the 10-inch slider. Um, if you just go with the 10-inch non-sliding version, I don't think you're going to be real happy with the capacity of that thing. What what are the capacity differences? A lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. Considerably, if it's a sliding <laughs> I don't know versus the numbers. just a standard. <laughs> <laughs> Significant. So oh, my God. So it, much it's enough that it, it's when you're using it, you are thinking, yep, that takes care of it. And when you don't have it, you're like, oh, Man, I shouldn't have been such a cheapo when I was standing there getting ready to buy this. But one thing I know, Mark, with yours, you have the the Capex, right? Uh yes. Okay. So with that, the way that that's set up, because they engineer those things so beautifully. Uh when when that is at its resting position, like the the, the ho- dust hose and everything is like you can have it practically up against the wall and it's not you're not gonna have to worry about the dust hose and everything, right? Yeah, the capex
1: is the exception though. It's the only yeah, one exactly. that you could put right up against the wall.
0: Right, and with with these other ones, the the big issue, and especially he's the way he's describing here with his small shop and everything else. So much of the rest of that body, that nose practically is mm-hmm. just sticking way out. And even if you turn it so that it's constantly angled, you know, and then you come in to use it and you put it in whatever angle you need, straight on or something like that. That still is just in my mind, and given my little shop. That is the type of thing that I will always hit. I'll have bruised hips. I'll be angry all the time. I'll drop stuff. And you think I looked all frantic when I'm gluing up my carcass? Let me tell you something. Yeah, Matt's just going to put like the
1: he's going to put tennis balls on the end of every little dude that, that's hanging oh, off. Who would have thought of that?
0: <laughs> so you can see it from a mile away, and it cushions yeah, forget, him a little bit. Forget childproofing in the house. We need to mat proof the basement <laughs> shop. There you go.
2: <laughs> cool. Okay, this uh, email is from Kevin. He says, I'm building an entertainment center for a friend, and he's asked me to emulate a design he found at a local furniture store. And Kevin was nice enough to send us a picture. I will include that picture in the show notes. So you got to go to the website, folks, to see it. It's the only way, only place you're going to be able to see it. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find an elegant yet sturdy way to attach the uprights on the ladder style shelves. I tend to overbuild, and if style were not a concern, I'd through bolt them with a hex nut and washer on the inside of the cabinet. But style is important to him, some people. So I'm looking for alternatives. Note, the uprights will be eight-quarter versus the larger posts shown in the picture. So what we've got is kind of a central uh, central low cabinet. Imagine like a flat-screen TV-style entertainment center, this low-cupboard-looking thing. Mm. Either side are those ladder-style shelves that lean up against the wall. So they're leaning back, the, the uprights on those ladder styles are leaning back at you know, some degree. Imagine a ladder leaning against the wall. There you go. So, what he's looking at is a way to attach those two flanking ladder shelves. And <clears throat> I'm not sure if he's thinking he could do this with some sort of joinery. And if he is, I want to caution him to stay away from that because A, you won't be able to lift the project when you're done. B, it probably won't fit in a car to transport it to the client. C, it probably won't fit through the front door in order to get into the room. So you have to be very careful with the the kind of almost any entertainment center for that matter. They tend to get really big. And if you can't take it apart, that's going to be a real problem later on. Say they just want to remodel the room and move it to the other wall. That's going to be a real issue. So, I do think that the idea of being to being able to connect those cabinets in a way that they can be disconnected later is going to be kind of key. So, he said, you know, if it worked to me, I would just, you know, run a bolt through there and a washer. Well, my solution is pretty much the same thing, but to use his term, a little bit more elegant. And there are things called connector bolts. Um, I recently have gotten them at Rockler, and they're essentially um, uh, Allen. Uh, Allen bolts with uh, two heads, and one is a female thread, one is a male thread, and they come together. and You you can either recess that head, or you can leave it proud of the surface. They come in a couple of different colors, um, but the bronze one um, looks very very nice. It's a very classy looking um, connector that is almost invisible, especially if you recess it slightly so that it's not proud of the surface. Uh, it's very very nice. And based upon the design he's looking at, it would be pretty much hidden. Unless the shelves are empty all the time, you would never see it. Mm-hmm. So I recommend the, uh, the connector bolts, and I'll uh, include a link to Rockler where I bought mine. They come in at least two sizes. There may be more sizes than that. But with the eight-quarter post to, I'm assuming, a three-quarter cabinet side, he'll they'll, the biggest one will have enough capacity to connect those together.
0: Nice. I have those. I, I've got them down in my shop right now, and I don't know why I have them. I just used those on the kitchen helper
1: not too long ago.
2: Yeah, yeah, they're a nice.
1: Look, very yeah, nice they look. are very elegant, and they're they're so low profile. Like you said, if you did recess them, they would disappear. But even if you don't, it's not like nothing's going to get caught on it. They're beveled all the way yeah. around the edge, and it's not going to take up shelf capacity or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, they're super low profile.
0: Now Something. I know where I used them. It's on the uh, the trestle table that I the, one of the first projects I ever did. Those were exactly what I used. That's how I connected the base to the top. And yeah, they fit right in there. In fact, it was like so good looking. I was like, "Did I make that?" You're like, "Hey, baby." what's up there what are you doing under the table I'm looking at these connector bolts (laughs) (laughs) wonderful All right. well
1: I think we can close this one off if you want to support the show you can do so just head to woodtalkshow.com look in the right hand column and you'll see a couple of links for donations one time or recurring donations you can also pick up a woodtalk t-shirt at twwstore.com and go ahead and enter that giveaway at woodtalkshow.com slash giveaway and you got a couple cool things that you could win this month and if you want to you can go to iTunes and leave us a review just look us up in the iTunes store click on ratings and reviews and if you can give us that sweet five star rating just like who do we have here John Davidson did I love this he says why is this show addictive why 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 and gave us five stars and that's uh, frankly one of our best reviews ever (laughs) I really like it was it five whys Uh, yes no six actually Oh, oh, wow. We A total of six. The, the
0: possible maximum stars. I am really
1: uh, hanging though, because I want to know why. I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, you tell us, John. Uh, but thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Hey, Mark, before you go too far,
2: how long is the giveaway open this month? Do we take it right up to the, the last day of the month? Like, yeah. How long do people have to register?
1: It's usually through the final day of the month. Okay. 'Cause it's kind of automated, so we don't we don't actually physically <laughs> we close don't it. we don't really know. <laughs> just what, one day it'll it'll reset. Whenever so Nicole like, feels
0: like it. You don't wake up Nicole in the middle of the night and go, Did you flip the switch? Hey, honey,
1: wake up. We <laughs> gotta turn <laughs> off the Wood Talk giveaway.
2: <laughs> whenever Skynet tells
1: us to turn it off. <laughs> Pretty much. Good. Yeah. So it's just straight till the end of the month. Uh and if you haven't entered by then, you know, there's always next month. There's always next month. Right. Okay. All Sorry, right.
0: carry on. Yeah, no problem. Hey Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here? All right. Hey, folks, do you have a comment question, a topic suggestion, or maybe a recipe that includes a lot of vinegar for our good bunny mark Mm -hmm. there? You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. You can call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at kickback at woodtalkshow.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page and if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's episode or maybe previous episodes, you're going to find those all over at woodtalkshow.com. Sweet. All
1: right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time. Yep. See you. Around. Yeah. Here here's Here's the rule of thumb. If the bread ain't red, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like to say.